0: To another edition of March Madmen, the podcast that aims to bestow a crown of bones to the horror film we deem greatest of all time, The GOAT. And I am not talking about Black Phillip, people. Season one is looking at Haunted House Films. We've completed the first round already of our little competition. We've whittled it down from 32 films to what we're calling The Sinister 16. And that begins tonight everybody we've got four movies that will be locked in combat it's do or die even for the ghosts and demons up in here we've got bush league optical printing we've got margot kidder's ballet moves big wheels riding indoors frosty hedge mazes doctored video easygoing aussies a ouija board straight from the shelves of kmart and a horny-possessed Michelle Pfeiffer. We've got it all here tonight, folks. As always, I am John Evans, because that's who I am. I can't do anything about that. And I am joined by my remarkable co-hosts, two of the hardest-working men in show business, screenwriter Vikram Wheat and reality TV poobah, Rich Eckersley. Rich, how the hell are you tonight? Good, sir.
1: I'm doing all right, John. I am holding it together. In, uh, in what's feeling like some pretty dark times right now in our, in our country. Uh, but I'm doing my best. I'm looking forward to getting into these movies and discussing an alternate world that I'm not currently living in. Yeah, it
0: happens to be true that a lot of crazy shit is happening during our podcast that we hope to be evergreen and uh, you could be listening to it in 2025 and enjoy it just as much as you would on June 2nd, 2020, which is actually when we're doing this. But yeah, uh, there's a lot going on right now with uh, protests and marches and some unfortunate responses to those protests. And things may or may not be escalating. But uh, let's not get into the politics or, or of all of this. But I will just say, I'm glad people are out there. And um, I'll leave it at that for now. But uh, Vic, how the hell are you, buddy?
2: John, I'm 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 okay. (laughs) Yeah, I'd love to give you like a like a super enthusiastic like, holy shit, I'm I'm just rock hard and ready to talk about these movies. (laughs) Uh, I had I had some just some weird experiences. I think like you like you guys are saying, like it's this is a this is a weird time and there's a lot of weird shit going on. My office was supposed to open this week. Uh, And we have postponed that opening uh, for fear of people being able to get out of their homes safely to and from work. There's a curfew in place. And so to to have all that swirling around in the miasma and then sit down to watch the shining where Jack Nicholson goes insane and tries to kill his family uh, was once again, I feel like as I as I continue to say in this. As we record this podcast, a very unique experience. And I actually found the film, which I've probably seen 20 or 30 times, really refreshingly terrifying and and really unsettling. And I actually I think I I actually had to turn it off for a little bit and take a break from it and come back because it was getting under my skin. And there's a there's a lot of that in these films, uh, especially the good ones. (laughs) What lies beneath (laughs) Uh, especially the good ones. So uh, I think that there will be a, a good deal to talk about here.
0: Wow. Interesting. I can't wait to dig into it with you there, Vic. But um, I am I, reminded of the Chinese curse. Uh, you know, may you live in interesting times. And I'm also reminded of a meme that I saw recently, which was really funny. It was Doc Brown And Michael J. Fox's character from Back to the Future, and they're sitting in the car, and he says, whatever you do, don't go back to 2020. Don't go to 2020. (laughs) And I think that that's a a pretty safe uh, statement to make halfway through the year. But uh, who knows? Maybe it'll get better, but it's certainly bringing a little bit of frisson to our interpretations of these films, and uh, who knows how it might affect our conversation, if it does at all. But uh, Rich, what what are your thoughts at this moment uh, as we're about to talk about uh, The Shining?
1: Look, I'm eager to get into The Shining. If we're talking about getting into that movie in particular, I will say that my feelings—I want to be Vic. Like I want to be at least in the capacity of you know watching The Shining um, and having a charming life. Like you know, I want to be excited about watching The Shining and I really went in this time watching it wanting to see what you guys see in that movie and it's still just does, like does not excite me that much so uh yeah I'm I'm uh I'm I come as an open mind I'm a am but a vessel waiting uh not to wow. be filled wow. Jesus not by you no <laughs>
2: <laughs> dude too bold, bad Rich cause that's bold, bold, what you're gonna <laughs> get
1: um yeah no i i want to be convinced i want to believe in the shining please gentlemen bestow your wisdom upon me
0: ben dover yeah I mean, <laughs> jesus john all right I, I'm, I'm quoting a, uh fletch lives come on
1: <laughs> oh my god
0: that was a deep cut <laughs> randall randall text cobb everybody uh, if you remember him okay uh, also of um, raising Arizona look <laughs> Rich I don't know what to tell you man I mean if, if at this point you don't you don't see the shining as one of the all-time greatest films of all time let alone greatest horror films of all time I doubt very much that our flapping gums are gonna convince you otherwise uh, I
2: disagree John I'm gonna convince I'm gonna convince Rich. Just as soon as we dive a little bit further into Randall Tex Cobb's uh, filmography, I I really want to talk about Digstown for a few minutes, if you guys haven't (laughs) haven't seen it.
0: No, I have. It's a great movie.
2: That's
0: a very underrated 90s film. Outstanding. Yeah. James Woods, baby.
2: Yeah. And Luke Gossett Jr. (laughs) Yes. People forget what a great actor he is. Anyways.
0: Yeah. No, they were both great in it. Uh, Yeah. Before James Woods kind of turned into a psychopath. But that's neither here nor there.
2: Off the rails, guys. We're five minutes in. We're completely off the rails. I would dare
0: say we've already lost any Red State listeners that we have. So that's, that's going great.
2: Yeah.
0: Okay. So anyway, let's talk about The Shining. Highlight sequence is our first order of business tonight, as everyone who's been hopefully listening uh, through our first round— Of our tournament, Uh, we had scorecards, and now for the Sinister 16, we're shaking it up a little bit, and we're going to do things a little differently. um, Starting with highlight sequence, and in this, if I understand it correctly, this was Rich's uh, brainchild. The idea is let's pick a a sequence from the film that really stands out—that we, we, our favorite sequence, perhaps, or something that is definitely worthy of discussion. I'll kick it off because I think this is the definitive sequence in the film. And it's Jack Torrance's visit to room 237 from the surreal, but still creepy overt eroticism of his casual encounter with the statuesque Swedish looking woman to her incredibly shocking transformation to her much, much older, much more. I've been dead in a bathtub for a couple of days form to her fucking cackling at him for his reaction to the prank that she's just pulled on him. For me, this is just one of the top five most indelible horror movie sequences of all time, period.
2: John, I'm glad you brought that sequence up because that is one of the sequences that I've thought about a lot as it compares to other horror films. And One of the things that I find challenging i guess especially as a writer but even as a viewer is you know i've gotten the note of like hey we need some nudity in this you know hey like we need a sex scene if you want to get people in the theater there's got to be some fucking uh and and i've had that note on scripts where i'm like guys that that doesn't make any sense like there's no way for me to realistically work that in and they're like yeah but do it anyway
0: so I know the last thing that Vic we wants to write is a sex scene, right? I mean, you would you you hate to have that kind of
2: thing. In well, your mind. I think what what I would say is that I I hate to have anything in a horror film that doesn't fit. Right, right. And that always pulls me out of the film. And generally speaking, I feel like when we're looking at horror films, a lot of times there is just some kind of sexuality sort of shoehorned in there one of the things that's always stuck out to me as a as a memory is watching marcus nespel's um texas chainsaw massacre reboot because jessica beale is in it and she's she's quite good in it she's quite a good actress and yet there is this scene when they're in the basement and one of the guys has been hung on these meat hooks and she is just soaking wet and like every part of her body is sort of poking through her outfit Mm -hmm. and she's trying to lift this guy who is in agony off of this thing. I was like, why are you trying to give me a hard on in this scene? Like, this is not, this is not a scene where sexuality should be important. This isn't, this isn't a time when you want that to be the focus of my attention. And I, I, it's one of those scenes where you can hear the producer, talking like, Hey, come on. We got Jessica Biel. Let's, let's, you know, let's dress this up a little bit. And mm. this, and, and so that's, I've always had a complicated relationship when it comes to sexuality and horror films. And I feel like the times when it works are many, many fewer, uh, than the times when it doesn't.
0: Well, and before the- you go on, I just want to posit that you will never have to worry about that ever again. Uh, because like at this point in the climate that we're in now, and I don't think this is going to change. It's probably a good thing. I don't think that you see what you could call just the, – the scene that you're describing is just nakedly exploitive, exploitative. Um, yeah. And they just like – nobody nobody's doing that anymore. We've evolved beyond it. It, it feels very 20th century. But I I know that, yeah, the point that you're making is that this scene does not uh, fit into that category, even then. But it it is interesting.
2: This scene is the apex of how to correctly use sexuality in a horror film, where you are lured in just like Jack Nicholson in the way that it's filmed, in the actress that they've cast, in the way that she moves. Everything about it is sensual and alluring, and it draws you in. Only to hit you with the gut punch of revulsion. This is a scene where it fits, where it works. It is, it is timeless. It is effective. It, uh, it 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 has sprung into my mind every time I've gone to get into the shower for like three years after I saw it for the first time, and periodically ever since. So, and, and, as I,
0: I, I said before, ten years for me. But yes, we're on the same page.
2: <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a, I mean, it's a, it is a masterpiece of a scene and really one of the best uses of full frontal nudity in a horror film, not for something purient, but just to accentuate the horror that is coming.
0: Yes. And you have to sell the sensuality and the seduction in order to really make the horror land.
1: I don't know how well I really feel like it sold the seduction at least to any character other than uh, Jack Torrance at, at that point. I mean, yes, I, 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 I see where you're coming from on it. And I, and I like the scene. Don't get me wrong. I'm actually – this is not like a, a strike against the – I think I think it's a terrifically creepy scene. I find the the payoff at the end of it to be especially disturbing – um particularly what you were saying john about the the cackling about the the pleasure that the entity seems to be taking with with jack's torment yeah i i do feel that it's not like when you enter the bathroom with jack that you feel like everything's on the up and up it is creepy from the get go i mean that that is a that is a chilly unsettling bathroom. And the fact that there's a, as you point out, a, a I think you called her s- Swedish.
0: That was Swedish. my just guess. <laughs>
2: <laughs> John, John uh, I, feel like you're, I feel like you're projecting a little bit there. But uh, that's
0: okay. <laughs> I, I might. I, I definitely have an affinity for Scandinavian women.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: she definitely has a, she's like this Nordic slash like a Amazon kind of vibe to her. You know, and she moves her body in a very alien way. Like I would not call like we were talking uh, last week about like uh, Michelle Pfeiffer and What Lies Beneath. Sorry, Vic. And that was I would certainly say like a much more like conventionally seductive portrayal. Whereas I find there to be something threatening about this woman from the moment she appears on screen. But I do think that one of the things that's interesting about this movie is the fact that the thing that you're seeing on display in this scene is that Jack Torrance does seem to want to be seduced by the evil in this house. Yes, yeah. he's horrified and repelled by the ugliness when he encounters it, but he is also ready to give himself over to the darkness in it. And that I think is why you see him go, go to that woman. And for me, I think that's why I find it effective. I agree that like the That the the use of nudity in it is completely appropriate and feels motivated and does not feel exploitative. Um, I always feel like I'm putting an extra T in exploitative. I I know.
0: I struggle with that too. Like it's a word that when you put it in print, it's easy. But then it's like, wait, exactly how do we pronounce that?
2: (laughs) I, I I felt the same way about prurient. So uh, <laughs> yeah
0: is it do you pronounce the r or not <laughs> this is what i got from when the yeah. way when you said it <laughs>
2: um i do think it's very telling about what jack's uh, what his his character's mindset is with this in that when he comes back after this scene and wendy says hey okay what was up there and he says nothing what was anything up there There certainly wasn't a naked woman in a bathtub that I made out with. Um, You know what I mean? But that's that he has this horrifying encounter, but then denies it because, like you said, I think he wants to be seduced by it. I think he's open to being seduced by it. And so he can't he certainly can't admit to Wendy what happened up there, but I'm not sure he can even admit it to himself.
0: This uh, is this is a man who is at, he's circling the drain of his life in, in every way, financially, artistically, even emotionally, and in the relationships that are most dear to him. And the lifeline that is thrown to him is, you know, to a, a ghost ship. But he still, you know, versus drowning, he still eagerly grabs it. Because it's something to hold on to that feels powerful. And I think all of that sells the sequence and sets it up. I mean, not to mention the fact that they've been stuck in a, uh, I guess, like for us now, we're like, well, oh, that'd be easy. I mean, I've been isolated for months now. But, you know, the idea that uh, that they're stranded in this hotel uh, with no other human beings for months I think that contributes to where where he's at right now and how open he is to this situation as fantastical as it obviously is. Good choice, John. Thank you. Thank you. To me, it was a kind of a no brainer, but I can't wait to hear what you guys say. Uh, Rich, what's your choice?
1: My choice is that I was just about to check this. I think that this is the scene that happens right before that scene. I could be wrong. The highlight for me, at least the scene that, that has always stuck with me about with this film, I mean, there there are many, um, despite my my issues with the movie. And one that really struck me again this time is the first scene in the uh, with Lloyd, the bartender, mm-hmm. uh, the scene where he goes into it's the, the gold room. Right. Yeah. Feel free to correct me if, if this if this is wrong, but this is a movie that has been like the story so far has been. Toying with the idea that there is a that there is an evil, and that there is a presence, that there is a haunting going on. You know, certainly the what's his name, Halloran, like tells us earlier in the movie that that there is one, but we haven't seen any evidence of anything that is could truly be called supernatural up until this point in the movie. And this this scene comes along and Jack Torrance, again, much like the, the scene that we just talked about in Room 327, he makes the transition to something that we know empirically not to be real. We've been walked through this bar before. We know it's empty. We know the booze is gone. And he walks into what is clearly not reality – and walks into it seamlessly, and takes the audience right along with you up to the bar to speak to a character who we know is not real, and to have an entire conversation where he not only begins to vent about his real feelings about his family, but actually admits firsthand to the abuse that that uh that his wife Wendy described earlier in the film. Just a uh, few foot pounds of pressure. <laughs> it, it it really is like in. I would. It's not quite. The, it's not quite the tipping point of, you know, of his of his fall in this film, and it's not a surprise that this is where the movie's going. It's the way that he eases into it is what makes it so unsettling. It's yeah. so easy for him to just move into this other world, which I guess raises questions about: is he actually part of that world to, to begin with? I mean, there's obviously a lot to be. To discuss about the, the end of the movie and and what um, that means. But I mean,
0: but, you could also just say this is alcoholism was the thing that the movie is really about and how alcoholism allows him to justify and come to terms with and, and peace with the demons that he is allowed to hurt his family. And that's exactly what's happening in the scene. And... Yeah, it's it's an excellent choice. I, this is an
2: amazing scene. I made sort of a list of the good and bad things in this movie, and I literally have Jack Nicholson in both categories <laughs> because he is so over the top at times. I feel like Kubrick didn't work with a lot of movie stars and certainly not with movie stars of this caliber of where we, you know, that Kirk
0: Douglas,
2: Kirk Douglas. Yes. I mean, Peter Sellers a little bit, but you wouldn't think of Matthew Modine. Malcolm McDowell certainly wasn't at the time that, that he was doing clockwork orange or Or Ryan Ryan O'Neill or yeah. So, uh, and not really not again until Tom Cruise in eyes wide shut. So Jack Nicholson is, you can, you can sense, that Nicholson can just fall back on being Jack Nicholson. And you can also sense Kubrick being frustrated with that and wanting something else. And so I feel a certain, there are times when I feel a certain weariness when I watched Nicholson. The, the opening scene where he's interviewing for the job, yeah. you, can, you can feel a weariness in Nicholson like you're watching take 67 of it. But then you get to this bar scene and it's Nicholson falling back on Nicholson, but in the best possible way where Rich just exactly what you said. Like his movie star charisma as he strolls in and starts talking to a bartender that isn't there and it's a drop in the bucket that gets filled up by the time he walks into that ballroom and it's full of people. And he just does the same thing. He just walks in, he kind of dances around some people as he's making his way to the bar. And he, he just sort of casually accepts these things. And it just seems like one of those, one of those scenes that you couldn't, that wouldn't work if you were doing it with anyone else. And Nicholson makes it work just fantastically.
0: He does. And I, I take no issues with his performance. It's easy to say it's over the top, but I I think that for me, you know, it's a perfect representation of, of a man who's totally ruled by his id and his demons. And we don't have time to get into nuances. And you know, this movie isn't totally even about him it's it's as much Danny or uh, Wendy's movie so and it's a it's a fucking horror movie on top of it so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna really question that because I just I feel there's a consistency in the performance so and, and as you said like the way that he sells it the way that he makes it feel like, guys, I mean, there there are flamboyant, drunk assholes out there that have exactly this guy's level of pseudo-charisma and theatricality. I think it fucking nails it on
2: some level. John, John you, you're just trying to flatter me now. It's fine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, well... Uh, Vic, what do you have for your highlight sequence? I mean, is it something we, we never would have thought of, or is it something we're going to all nod and say, yeah, yeah, that was pretty awesome?
2: Yeah, shock Really? Yeah. <laughs> <Drilling. laughs> I, I don't think this is going to be a shock, unfortunately. I mean, goodness knows there are, there are a lot of amazing scenes in this. But I have a, I have a list with a, with a couple on here because I wanted to be prepared because one of the ones that I had was, was Jack at the bar for all the reasons that we mentioned, I could talk about Danny rolling around and, and coming upon the, the twin, that the twins, cause they're not actually twins, but the sisters at the end of the hall. They're not twins. I think that's what's that.
0: They're not twins.
2: Uh, he says that he has two little girls. I, 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 I feel like Don't Stuart Allman think- said, I feel like he said something that said to me that they were not twins. I could be wrong.
0: Wait, Stuart was, Ullman is not the. You're talking about Delbert Grady.
2: No, Stuart Ullman, when he's telling Jack what happened uh, in, oh, the, right, in the in right, the hotel, right. when I was watching it this time, I I feel like he said something that made me think, "Oh, they're not twins." So that's mm-hmm. that's neither here nor there. That minutia will wait for a for a future round. The point is that is that one of the all time scariest scenes ever, and really the first all-out shocking horror scene in the film, but that's not what I'm going to go with because I feel like that is – everybody's going to talk about that. I want to talk about Wendy's what I call her House of Horrors run at the end of the film when yes. things have just gone sort of batshit crazy. And there's – truly, there's nothing to it except Wendy running around the hotel, holding a knife, Shelly Duvall – looking like her head is going to fall off every time she turns a corner because first there's a guy in a suit with blood on him saying, great party, and then she turns a corner, and there's the guy in the fucking warthog bear pig suit. It's like man bear pig. (laughs) Um, (laughs) South Park. Blowing another guy. Thank you blowing another guy, and they both just sit up and, like, look at her. And the camera, I mean, it has all these, like, quick zooms, which they use occasionally, but normally it's the kind of camera move that that pulls me out a little bit. But in this, every time that zooms in, the audio effects, the sound design that happens whenever she sees those things, it's the same audio cue each time. And I believe it goes the guy in the suit and then the uh, man-bear-pig And then she comes upon sort of a a, a lounge that is filled with cobweb-covered skeletons. That's the least effective of the three. And, of course, it's intercut with Danny hiding from Jack and those sort of things. But it is the culmination of sheer madness that this hotel at this point has just taken the shackles off. It It is letting all of its evil imagery fly and really it's trying i suspect to discourage wendy's trying to keep wendy from finding danny uh and preventing jack from killing him and i it's that i mean that one it, it boy it just it just peaks with the the man bear pig blowjob it's one of it's just one of the strangest most disjointed things i've ever seen in a horror film and that's a weird like you've seen as many horror films as we've seen that's a hell of a goddamn thing to say about a scene in a movie
0: i totally agree but i would i would put put that as part of the ending so that's why i guess we talked about this before the show (laughs) i think that's an act three thing but it's, a, it's an amazing sequence. Uh, but that's part of what I think makes the overall, the act three of this film, so strong. And I think that's essential with any classic of, of the genre. So we've gone through the, the highlight sequences. I think let's hold off on talking about that further because, uh, again, we are going to talk about the ending uh, in a few mom- moments. So um, let's, let's move on to low light sequence. Uh, which is definitely hard for me. This is like finding the the missed brush stroke in the Mona Lisa, but I'll, I'll try. It took me a while. Uh, I was tempted to say the helicopter shadow in the opening sequence because <laughs> apparently that basically ruined the movie for Vic. Uh,
1: ruined it. <laughs> and I, I almost go I ahead. Almost put the helicopter sequence like mm-hmm. as as my favorite sequence. <laughs> I, love, I love the helicopter
0: So do shadow. I. So do I. It's an amazing opening sequence. Can I say is, that I wasn't aware of the helicopter shadow? No, I was, but.
1: Eh. It just has a woozy, seductive, like, tangible quality to it that is not unlike anything that I saw in any of the other movies. I mean, there, like, there's no arguing with the compositional and you know, like directorial, like power of this film, you know, like, I I feel like all the stuff like feels a little like rugged and very effective, but anyways, I'm sorry. I know we're not here to talk about the helicopter shot. I like the helicopter shot, helicopter shot 2020.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But if I, if I have to pick something, I, I think it's the laboriously detailed Halloran making his way to the overlook stuff. Which where we, we get to watch like every rental car, you know, every flight that he takes, every move that he makes. I think there's probably like a very willful point to this on both a script and directorial level why they do that, but I can't help but feel that it's unnecessary when he gets an axe in the chest 15 seconds after arriving at the hotel. Like, it's, 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 it's definitely not something to me that when I watch it again, I'm like, oh, man, I'm really glad we're seeing every step of his trip knowing that he makes it about, you know, 20 feet down the first hallway before he dies. Like, that doesn't totally work for me. So, I'll, I'm going to go with that. Uh, Vic,
2: Vic, what's yours? I... I actually had that too. I this. I'll talk a little bit about some some other scenes in the opening too. But just to spend on that a little bit, I know in the book they use that journey as a way to explore the Shining a little bit, and you get more of Halloran's history with it and his relationship with his grandmother that he talks about in the movie. He talks about it a little bit with with uh, Danny, and. It even has one of my favorite moments in the book, and it it just kills me. I don't know why Kubrick would include all of this and not include one of the – just the neatest little moments. So when Halloran gets off the plane in the airport at Denver and he's walking to the airport, he passes a woman at the baggage carousel who's reading a book. And he smiles to himself because he knows that only someone who knows when their bag is going to come – can stand at the baggage carousel and read a book. And it's that like this brief moment of connection that he passes somebody else who has the shining and the way that you you start to see how if this was something you were conscious of, lots of people have a little bit of it here and there and the, the different ways that it would manifest itself. It was just such a such a neat way – to, ex- to expand the world and to make it feel like this is a world where this is a thing that exists and happens. And if you knew how to look for it, you would find it too. And he doesn't have any of that. I really think it's just that they were nervous. I don't want to say nervous because I'm not sure Stanley Kubrick was ever nervous. But mm-hmm. I think that they were concerned that people couldn't just be in the Overlook Hotel for that long that it really is just a chance to cut away to something outside of that space. I don't know how cuz I don't know how else to explain it. You're absolutely right. It's probably a solid 20 minutes of the movie. Yeah. Is is just Dick Halloran traveling from a story perspective for no reason other than to drop off a uh, snowcat mm. <laughs> before getting killed. That's the only narratively that's the only purpose it serves. And so in the book, there are these other sort of narrative threads in terms of world building that he's able to pull in. And Kubrick's not interested in that. I don't understand it. It's a very strange choice.
0: Well, I will say like both just hearing you talk about it and then upon reflection that maybe at the time, like on a first viewing basis, it's building the suspense that many films do, that the cavalry is on its way, but, you know, this is how long it's going to take. And we're, we're very much, like, believing as a first-time viewer, which is very hard for me, having seen this movie, you know, 30 times. Um, but that if Halloran can just get there, everything will be okay. And we're like, oh, okay, just you know, he's got to do this, he's got to do that, and oh man, I, I you know, it's just, I, I hope it goes well. I hope he gets there soon. You know, like it, it's, it could be seen as this tantalizing, tense build to, is it, is he's, is he going to make it in time? You know, like I think there's, there's an argument to be made that that's very old-fashioned and, and classical filmmaking. But it's hard to see that now. Like, once you've seen the movie once, you it, it feels really overlong. But, you know, maybe it was totally fucking excruciating the first time you saw this movie. I don't know.
2: John, this, is your, this was your pick for a bad scene. Well, you know, again,
0: did did you hear me when I was talking about the Mona Lisa? I mean, unlike Rich, I think this movie is fucking perfect. Um, So I'm just, I'm poking at the little tiny threads that might be a little loose. So there we go. Okay. Who's next? Who wants to give their low light sequence?
1: I'm as close as you're going to get to a first viewing on, at least with, within this crowd. I think this is probably the third time that I saw The Shining. And not only will I say that that, that the, the whole like Scatman Crothers like plot line of like trying to get to the, the overlook is not accomplishing the goal of, of building tension. If that's in fact is what it was there to do. I mean, the very fact that you have to sit there and speculate as to what someone like Kubrick was trying to, accomplish with the storytelling tells you that like it wasn't functioning i mean you're talking about a pretty precise director ouch I, i'll go on to say that i put as my low light and i'm and allow me to, to sort of like talk through this and i know you guys will, will shoot this down probably um i actually put the entire sequence with Halloran and danny in the in the early, you know, in the first act of the film when they're, when they're introduced to the Overlook Hotel and Halloran sits him down because his parents have gone off to go tour the hotel. And, and Halloran starts talking to him and they kind of reveal that they, that they have this uh, this telekinetic shine and that the the hotel has a, has a shine on its own. The scene itself, I mean, the performances are are fine. I actually like I, – I sort of like Scatman Crothers and, and find him sort of charming here. Um, Danny Lloyd is, is fine. I don't, I can't say I love him in this movie, but I do appreciate how completely downbeat he is for the entire film. Some of his scare faces sort of turn me off. But the reason why I chose this scene is because I am still at a loss. I mean, the, the, the film is called The Shining. Like let's disregard the book. The film is called The Shining. We spent all this time focusing on, on Danny's shine and 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 Toby the the voice in his in his the boy who lives in his mouth and
0: and it's all this Tony not Toby
1: or whatever like I said yeah. third year. no we
0: have another Toby in in third, our third, season third. of our show the, yeah
1: Toby is the Toby isn't Toby the the pig creature in the uh, in Amival or am I, am I confusing this no, with that's her? that's 50, that's 30. Jody Jody uh,
2: okay Jody it's, I think but, Toby the, Toby is Paranormal Three. Yeah. 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 Good job, Vic.
1: Good job. Someone's going to need to create an infographic for all these. <laughs> um, honestly, like, here's what mystifies me about this movie is that I just, I feel like you could remove Danny's shine and you could certainly remove Halloran who's really just there to serve his exposition for the shine and to deliver a snow cat. You could pull them that element out of this film And the rest of the film still functions just fine. And yet it's the focal point of the setup of the film.
0: Well, you want the idea that these people are totally isolated, but someone could come save them. I mean, I think that's a very classical Hollywood dramatic device,
1: right? So you have to set up a telekinetic legacy in order to achieve that? I mean, she could have... uh, could have also just radioed the the Rangers again in the midst of the snowstorm and had them slowly make their way there over twenty minutes.
2: Rich, I don't want to. I don't want to super nerd out on you, but uh, Danny's not telekinetic. Hmm. Uh, I think he's. I think he's. He's merely psychic. I mean, I think that.
0: And by the way, the actor is six years old. Six years old. He's born on on the January first, nineteen seventy three. The movie came out in 1980, so it must have wrapped up shooting in 1979, like, uh, at the latest.
2: I think that Danny is really our window into what's happening in the hotel. And if he was just a little boy and we didn't have some sense for why he was stopping in front of room 237 or why... He was being visited by these things, but Wendy was not, for instance. The information that he's providing for us is a lot of what builds the suspense, especially through the first half of the film, because there's not a lot of terribly scary things. That's, I mean, that was the, the backup bad note that I have, bad scene, bad sequence, is that the opening of the film is very dry and expository. Now, there this is just Kubrick laying the groundwork. So this is a little bit like John's where, look, like I'm, I'm nitpicking threads here because it's delivered about as well as you could have. But it's all about setting up the alcoholism and the history of the hotel and the time that he hurt Danny and room 237 and what the shining is and how, you know, the roads are going to be closed and the hedge maze. And it's there. There's so much groundwork to lay It all pays off in the end and they get a few little scenes in there. I mean it's – I think it's why Danny's uh, uh, flash – his psychic flash in the beginning when Tony shows him all of the blood coming out of the hotel and the little girls and all that kind of stuff. You just need that because otherwise you might forget that you're in a horror film and not just getting the history of an alcoholic uh, who's going to work as a caretaker for a hotel.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think whether it's uh, 1981 or 2020 or 2025, I think that this movie announces itself as a horror film. There's sufficient dread, there's sufficient tension, there's sufficient build that, you know, in my mind, one of my great signs of the apocalypse will really be. If generally the consensus is that people, young people, watch The Shining and they're like, nah, that that didn't do much for me. I'd rather watch Paranormal 17 or whatever, you know? like. But no, this movie has always retained its power with audiences, and I, I think that it's, it's one of those sort of timeless, enduring movies that just, it, it works on your fucking brain, man. It's a very unsettling, deeply disturbing movie.
2: John, I agree. It's a slow burn, but you have to admit that the vast majority of horror films have to open with some kind of really big scare in order to pave the way for all of the character development, the exposition, the setup that you sort of have to do just as part of making a movie. Yeah. This movie doesn't really do that. Again, you have no. the you have the one flash with him, but before that, you have a lot of dialogue with, uh, with Jack and uh, and Stuart Ullman, and 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 there's just there's a lot of buildup. I'm not saying I'm not saying it doesn't work. Again, we're nitpicking an exceptional horror film. I'm just saying this is a slow burn. And trying mm-hmm. to get through that opening scene and, and be like, no, no, I promise this is going to be really fucking scary. He, he drops a few little bits, a few little crumbs in there to tide you over until he gets to the good stuff. But it is, it, it, it is dry and exposition oh,
0: heavy. When I was in college, I wrote a paper. I hope I still have this on some hard drive somewhere. Uh, I wrote an entire paper about this movie And one of the things that I said was that every film, a frame of this film, feels to be infused with evil and menace and haunting. And to my eye as a kid and today, I could tell from the minute this film started that it was possessed with threat and with menace and the uncanny and the supernatural. And I was totally on board with it because I had the sense immediately that it was playing for keeps. This was, you know, not going to pull any punches. And I could be a little patient with it because just the mood, the tone, the atmosphere from the get-go was so palpable. Not even palpable, overwhelming that I was okay with that.
1: But John, if you you know well, I mean I, I I wanted to concede that point like I do feel like it's it is like I said, it's very effective filmmaking, but it does beg the question if that is true in this two plus hour movie, why do we need to spend the time a as Vic pointed out, just walking you through all this exposition at the very front? And B, if you are going to walk through all this exposition and you're going to explain that someone murdered their family there and the roads are closed and P.S. it was built on Indian burial ground, then why do you also need a psychic kid who can see visions so that you can see an elevator full of blood open up? While the images is, is effective, I'm just saying like it seems like we're we – through we spend the first act going through a lot of story hoops that we don't really need to if everything that you're saying is true. Well, but
0: who's the better writer than Stephen King? Like, I can't wait. Here's my next question. Okay, I mean, maybe, like, there's some logic to that. But this is a top five horror movie of all time, in my opinion. Like, we're going to do maybe like 500 movies we're going to analyze for different genres. And I just, I can't imagine anyone coming up with five movies that are more like airtight or perfect than this in the horror genre. I just, I can't. So like, uh, that's kind of what I I keep coming back to. Well, I guess
2: John, that's
1: what we're here for, isn't it? Yeah. John, I, I just want to point out that we are talking about the low lights and you're still, quoting your college paper where you're waxing philosophical to how genius the <laughs> film is where are the fucking lowlights man well dude
0: i have a pretty strong feeling that we're gonna get to talk about this movie in more detail and actually i honestly i have some hope that i will win you over to a degree when we start really delving into the the deep genius of this film. Because if we did this movie, if we gave this movie the treatment that we gave to uh, Halloween Resurrection, I I think that its merits would, would become apparent.
1: It's not about merits with this film. It's about, it is about that emotional connection that, that you guys both seem to have to it. It just, it's a film that doesn't like. I do not. I do not particularly want to sit down and watch this movie again. It doesn't scare you. You're not fascinated by it. Wow. I can. I can appreciate it. I think I love. There are elements of the story that I really love. Well, we're going to talk about it more. So like, we can save it for no time. Let's just say that it's not an issue of of appreciating the movie. It's an issue of enjoying it.
0: Look, I know you've you've been consistent, Rich. I mean, like, I I, have, I respect that because. My opinion sometimes drifts, like, from viewing to viewing of these different movies that we've seen. Like, I, I can have a very different experience on viewing four versus three or five or whatever. But you, you from the beginning, you're like, kind of, eh, The Shining leaves me cold, you know? And I, I totally, I, I get that. But we got to move on at some point because we got a lot more movies to cover. And, yeah, I do have a feeling we'll we'll come back to this. So let's talk about the ending because... Up until now, everyone, we've been uh, constrained by a spoiler-free mandate. From now on, we're not going to be worried about spoilers. So, everyone, if you're listening to this show, I really hope, because we've talked about these movies for at least two episodes previous to now, that you've had a chance to see the movie. I really encourage you to do so. But, yeah, we're not going to be doing spoiler-free episodes from this point forward. Well, that's a good it transition is. to what we're drinking. Vic, what are you drinking tonight?
2: I, I just finished a three philosophers from Omegang, which is a, a lovely Belgian quad, with a little bit of cherry Creek in it. It's delicious.
1: Mm, nice. Rich. I don't have a beverage. I was actually hoping that we were going to take a, take a beer break.
0: But uh, what will you be drinking when you, uh, when
1: you hit the fridge? I don't know, man. Do you guys want to put a, Put a vote in. I'm sort of torn between if it's too early to do a glass of bourbon or if, uh, if I should go with a beer.
2: Rich, we've all been working from home for the last two and a half months. It's never too early for bourbon.
0: <laughs> I will tell you guys this. This is the first podcast ever going back to when I was in Venice and we were doing early Friday the 13th movies where I have no beer in the house none
2: oh my god
1: yeah That's a sad story
0: i don't know what's going on so i just have to drink the hard stuff all night
1: <laughs> there you go
0: so i i started with manhattans and now i'm on a uh whiskey and coke i'm gonna try to you know have more coke than whiskey for the rest of the way All right, well, let's talk about the ending of this film now that we are no longer worried about spoilers. I think that's one of the critical determinants of a horror film's power. How,
2: Vic, do you feel the ending of The Shining works? This is a really complicated subject for me. I'm going to announce this in advance, and I'm not going to not talk about it, John, so don't give me any of your... (laughs) rules bullshit okay i think in order to talk about this we need to talk about the book because the ending is one of the real reasons that stephen king hated this movie but i also think you need to talk about how it juxtaposes very narrowly with the ending of dr sleep and specifically the movie because the the book of dr sleep is very different so in the book of the shining jack nichols is an alcoholic and gets overtaken by these demons, is threatening to kill his son. There is a lot of talk about the boilers, and the boilers have to be vented because if they don't, they'll blow up and blah, blah, blah. And they actually lay some of that groundwork in this film, which I find sort of interesting because it doesn't really pay off. When Jack is just about to kill his son, he comes back into himself for a minute. It's it's faced with the prospect of killing his son, He kind of can't bear to do it, and so he stops himself, and he gives Danny the chance to flee, and Danny and his mother get away, and Jack stays in the hotel, and the hotel blows up. And it is this very redemptive moment for Jack Torrance that he doesn't get in Kubrick's version of it. And especially having seen the the Mick Garris uh, ABC version, I understand why it doesn't really work. Knowing that Stephen King was an alcoholic... And who did have, I think, a lot in common with Jack Torrance, especially at the time that he was writing it, because you have to remember, he wasn't in recovery when he wrote The Shining. He was just an alcoholic. I think it was really hard for him to see the story of a borderline abusive alcoholic writer not have a redemptive moment at the end. I think he needed that for very personal reasons, and I think it was it was very hard for him to do that. And so I find it fascinating to look at this movie juxtaposed with Dr. Sleep, which is a sequel. The movie Dr. Sleep is a sequel to the Kubrick film and not a sequel to the book. And so what he does in that movie is give that very same redemptive moment to a grown-up Danny who is also an alcoholic. Seeing it even there in those contexts, but the, the way that you, what you feel is him trying to pull together all of these threads between the Book of the Shining and, and Kubrick's version of the Shining and wanting to find a way to make that positive, redemptive moment for an alcoholic work. Uh, in that case, it's it's not a biological child. It's it's more of, of sort of a, a just a child that he's taken under his wing a little bit. But it's still very effective. And yet, with all of that in mind, I think you just cannot forget that Stephen King's endings are by and large bad. I understand why Kubrick threw it at the window what he came up with i think is effective it's a it's an effective ending for the story that he's telling it's not very surprising it doesn't pull the rug out from under me it's not shocking it's not it's not one of the great all-time horror movie endings in the way that say the thing is It works. He tried to find a way to end this amazing, incredibly compelling, emotionally infused character driven story in a way that felt more realistic or 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 just fit with the story better than what King had imagined. Whatever his motivations for imagining it that way. The ending is good. It's solid. It fits. It doesn't elevate the film but i think it also doesn't bring it down in a way that i think if he'd stuck closer to the book it would have brought the film down
0: interesting that that's a much a more negative uh view than i expected from you so let's segue on to rich and and then i'll be the uh cleanup hitter
1: i'm no stickler for for rules i do feel like you really have to be assessing this movie as you would with any of these movies based on on their own merits and not their relation to source material or or sequels or anything like that. Although I do find all that, you know, all that context very interesting. I, you know, in answering this question for the first time, you know, as with the shining is the first movie that we're, we're reviewing on these standards. I found myself asking the question, well, what is the ending? And I think it's a question that we're going to return to, at least I'm going to return to several times. uh, As we go through these films, where you, are trying to figure out if you're looking for that thing, that, that final answer, that final resolution of the story, the thing that makes the horror film unique uh, in so many of these cases, I think sometimes it's not incredibly clear um, where it's happening. And especially this movie in particular falls into the lineage of films that actually, I I find that um, uh, Poltergeist has a, has a similar, Ending the uh, Amityville almost has a similar ending. It's a movie where it just kind of you know the the it's almost like the evil sort of runs its course and then the protagonists or you know the 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 good people in the film who live escape. and so this is something where you know Jack chases him into the maze. You know, Danny sort of outsmarts Jack, Jack very quickly, like, and suddenly freezes to death without remorse. And then, you know, they basically get in the snowcat and, like, drive off and the movie's over. Now, Mm -hmm. you have Mm -hmm. the ending with the photograph, which to me is a whole separate element. Like, are we talking about? I think you
0: have to count that, Rich, because I'm very much with you. But then I think that that final coda takes it to another level.
1: Sure, I'm. I'm not arguing with that. It's like, is is that sort of you know? Can that kind of stand independent of its own? Because I find that the first part of it, look, the movie on on if you're just taking like the hedge maze ending for what it is, is basically the ending of a slasher film. It's the end of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, mm-hmm. you know, except Leatherface freezes, which is cool. I would watch that. I'd like to talk about the the, the photograph um, at the end. I'm not sure that it, I. I like it in a mysterious way. I'm not sure I really was able to make sense of it from a story point of view. You know, it's implying a question and it's implying a deeper story about what was going on with Jack Torrance, but I'm not sure what it was. So I don't know. Where where did you go with it, John?
0: I definitely have always been won over by that final image of him in the picture and uh, the photograph and how uh, it opens up other interpretations of, of destiny and fate and reincarnation. And it just like, it's sort of mind blowing as you would expect from the director of 2001. So I think it elevates the the story uh, in a way that just kind of leaves so much more open to interpretation. I'm endlessly fascinated by that. Just the fact that the mom and the kid, pile into the snowcat and leave. And it's essentially roll credits at that point, um, up to this, you know, final image that doesn't sit all that well with me. I've always felt like that's like, there's something kind of weirdly simple about that ending. I am interpreting this as a judgment of act three. And I believe I haven't totally Hopefully we will, go through this movie and determine exactly what plot point two is and where act three begins. But I would say, and I guess I'm disagreeing with both of you that this is one of the greatest act threes ever. When you consider that potentially it begins around the point that the butler frees Jack from the freezer and it ends with Jack's frozen corpse the next morning and the photo of course of him. Every manner of suspense occurs in this act three. We've got harrowing batshit nuts insanity, like him taking down the bathroom door with an ax and here's Johnny. And I mean, like that is the intensity meter is at 12 and we have one of the best clever kid outsmarts the fuzzy headed adult sequences of all time in the hedge maze. Danny earns his own survival as a six year old. At the tender age of six of what or whatever he is, I mean, I think that that's pretty fucking awesome and stands out to me in the whole pantheon of clever kid movies. I, I fucking love what he does with the footprints in the snow and how it outwits his once smart, certainly passionate, but, you know, corrupted father. Who's just sort of a sad travesty of himself and he falls for this. It's, that hits me on several levels that we'll, we'll get into in the future. And then we also have, you know, a bit earlier, we have, as you guys, I think Vic mentioned, Wendy touring a gallery of ghosties that ranges from the perverse to the grotesque to the overwhelmingly inhuman with that tsunami of blood. I just think this is a knockout ending and a knockout act three. When do we quantify what an ending is? I think that that's up for debate here. And there's some, you know, some notes in the last five to ten minutes that, as I said, with the you know snowcat sequence, but they, that's so earned. At the same time, I mean, these two characters have gone through so much. How much more do we really need from them? I'm happy with the
2: ending overall. Certainly. Wait, I got two points I want to make. First off, I just want to say that ending is certainly more earned than in Poltergeist or in Amityville where they literally just get in the car and leave. Like oh, that, God, was not yeah. a, that, that was not an option that was available to Wendy and Danny really until the very end, like until they actually do it. It's not like they had the option of leaving and chose to just stay. They really didn't have the option of leaving. So just narratively, that makes more sense. But I want to put a question to you guys because the picture is an interesting point. Was Jack always in that picture, or did he appear in that picture after he died?
0: I had never contemplated the possibility of him just appearing in that picture.
2: See, I had always assumed that he was not in the picture, and that when he died, he was absorbed by the house. And then he became a part of the mythology.
1: Yeah, I've always interpreted it as he was in that picture the whole time, yeah. and if if only someone had looked, yep. prior to that,
0: yep, because the you've always been the caretaker. That to me was not just bullshit. I mean that 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 is exactly the the setup for him being in the picture at the end. Is that on some level his soul? He'd been here before.
2: I mean, I certainly see that and I can't argue with that, but somehow that just suggests reincarnation as sort of the, an underlying idea of what's happening here. And this yeah. film is so mysterious and so elliptical that it, it just feels like that that feels too neat. I watched the same movie and I think I always assumed that that was more an, an epigraph, that that was a tombstone that went up for Jack when he died.
0: Well, what's your interpretation it, of the line, you've always been the caretaker?
2: It's one of the most mysterious. In fact, that whole scene, I think, is 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 incredibly mysterious and open to a lot of interpretations. I, the short answer is I don't know.
0: I mean, I don't know either. But I would definitely say that the combination of that line and his face in the photograph suggests that he's always been a part of this hotel on some cycle. And while I mean, Delbert Grady might be another soul who, who, you know, comes up every other reincarnation or something like that, but that, that, Torrance's soul has been associated with this place preceding his current life.
2: I mean, that might be the case, but he's not the caretaker in that picture.
0: Well, yeah, because he's wearing a toxin smiling. He's, in,
2: he's at the he's at the front of the party, assuming <laughs> that we get to talk about this again. I think <laughs> it's a safe there, guess. There will be there will be some interesting things to talk about because again, I think that there there is a lot that's left open to interpretation. We didn't even really touch on the uh, the documentary. I know we talked about it a little bit in the past, but I think it's one of the things that makes this movie so timeless. Is that you do have an army of super crazy people who see this as Kubrick's confession for faking the moon landing or uh,
0: yeah, Native you know, Americans being slaughtered. slaughtered. Uh, yeah,
2: mm-hmm. exactly. This, But that's what I mean. But it's the reason that people are able to see those kinds of things in this and and obviously feel it very strongly is because there's a lot of unanswered questions and there's a lot of room for interpretation. I think that's part of mm-hmm. what makes it so great and we'll make for, for uh, still some great discussion yet to come.
0: Yeah, the fascination of this movie is that it's a riddle wrapped in mystery, shrouded in, a, in enigma, you know? I mean, I, I totally get that, and I love it, and that's part of why I uh, appreciate the movie so much as well, that, yeah, there's no easy answers, even, even when you compare it to the book that it's supposedly based on.
1: So if you as a viewer have enjoyed us discussing this 40-plus-year-old movie twice— and we'd like to, do us, to see us do it two more times in even greater detail. Stay tuned.
0: Well, as opposed to what? Some movies are going to be talked about four times. I think this is definitely better than Paranormal Activity 3 talked about four times.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Asshole-nominated well, that film. Yeah, yeah well, I'm the idiot. <laughs>
2: hey, Rich, let's not get carried away, okay? We don't even know if it's going to get out of this run. It's got to... It's got a very, very weak challenger coming up in What Lies Beneath.
0: You know, Vic, now Uh, you're pissing me off.
2: (laughs) Yep. Uh,
1: The the only only thing I'm going to throw in there, just to kind of put a, a, a final thought on the ending, is that the one thing I'll say that it does for me, just from a purely utilitarian point of view, is it does confirm once and for all that what you just witnessed was something that is otherworldly, if not a paranormal event and not simply something that was the manifestation of a man losing his mind.
0: Yeah. We know for sure it's real. It happened.
2: Right. Ah, Not, and I will say this, not the only time you know that because there's no other way Jack could have gotten out of the freezer.
0: Yep. Yep. Let's move on to Robert Zemeckis what lies beneath, which I just, I have to say, the first movie for our show ever that I have watched with my wife because she hates scary movies. I did force her to watch It Follows uh, when we first met. I, I quickly learned that that was a huge mistake. It was a good year <laughs> or so before our podcast on the subject, our Multiple podcasts on a subject, but um, this was the first movie since then that uh, we watched together she did it 's worth noting she forced me after about twenty five minutes of uh, the movie to say she 's like look i can 't watch this anymore unless you tell me because i've been i 've been trying to tell her stuff like Well, you know, in some movies, the ghost is actually trying to help the person, the protagonist of the movie, stuff like that. I've been dropping those kinds of hints, and she wasn't good with it. And then finally, she just stops me and says, what happens in this movie? And I walk her through the rest of it, and she's like, okay, I'll watch the movie. She did enjoy the film, and uh, I'm glad I got to share it with her. I like this movie. My highlight sequence, I've touched on it before here. I'm going to get into more detail for us because I have a feeling this is the last time we're going to talk about this movie. I still geek out with film nerd Glee watching that sequence where Michelle Pfeiffer is paralyzed in a bathtub. The water is slowly rising. She discovers she can wiggle her toes as this... Panthenol, or whatever it is, like she's she's been drugged, paralyzed by her husband. Um, it starts to wear off, and she tries to work the drain stopper, which is on a chain. She's trying to lift it before the water level reaches her her nostrils, because she's again ninety percent paralyzed by this drug. Success, the tub starts draining, but suddenly the chain breaks, and the stopper drops back into place. Now she's drowning. The water is up to her eyes. She's fighting panic, but she discovers she has more use of her limbs because this thing wears off between in three to five minutes, this drug. So she grabs the shower hose with her foot and she begins. She manages to manipulate it into turning the spigot. So less water is pouring out of the faucet. But now she's totally almost totally submerged. It's like it's almost over her head. And so she slowly, ever so slowly, positions her foot over the stopper and violently kicks it downward, sweeps it out of the drain, and suddenly it's draining, and she survives. I want to say that I bet Quentin Tarantino loves this scene with all of its foot stuff, but (laughs) (laughs) I just think it's a masterfully conceived, written acted, shot, edited. I'm sorry, my film studies nerd self from Boston University, I'm jizzing in my pants over this shit, man. I love this fucking sequence. It is so good.
2: The subtlety of the visuals in this one particular scene. Michelle Pfeiffer, uh, she goes out to the end of the dock. I forget why. Cooper the dog comes down. And his ball is in the water and, and she says, Cooper, you know, go get it. There's your ball. Cooper just stands there. He won't move, which among the themes, recurrent themes in haunted house films is the animals sense the evil almost as frequently as the kids sense the evil. So Cooper won't move and you're like, oh, something spooky's about to happen. Of course, then she gets they've got a little boat hook or something she uses to try and pull the ball in. And you just get, through the rippling water, this vague impression of a face. Yeah. And it, it sort of rises up. In a movie that doesn't have a ton of subtlety and has a lot of jump scares, this is one of the few really subtle, slow scenes where you can really see her looking at it and being like, what – What is that? What am I looking at? And is that, is it what I think it is? And by the time she sort of decides that maybe that's, maybe it is a body in the water, it starts to recede again and it disappears. And then the tension is broken when the phone, the cordless phone in her pocket rings and she sort of jumps and we get that release of tension. That's one of those effective uses of jump scares. Everyone rails against the jump scare. I just think that it's, it's a tool in the toolbox and it can be deployed well and it can be, and it's, but it's easy. It's one of those things that can be over deployed. That is one of the instances where it really worked and it really paid off. But I just really liked the subtlety of the imagery. It reminded me a lot of in, in the Asian horror films, they use the screens as a way of obscuring faces and it adds such an element of, of tension and suspense and horror when you see something horrible, but it is vaguely obscured and, you know, through, through something sort of translucent. And that was really what I got from this short scene of this body in the water.
1: I had both those moments on my, on my list. And I don't have another one that I really have want to add in there. Um, I agree with both of them. I, I think that, you know, Vic, the scene that you're pointing out was a, it was a scare that had a lot of restraint in a movie that one of its weaknesses is definitely the fact that it occasionally does not have enough restraint. John, I mean, you I, and I, I appreciate your breakdown of the, of the tub scene. You and I have already discussed that that scene is really worth the price of admission. When we started talking about this series and, and we, we mentioned this film initially, or, or, or it somehow came into my consciousness when we were talking about haunted house movies, that was really the only scene I could even remember is is the bathtub scene like, like it really is this film i agree with both y'all's choices i do think it has some some weaknesses i actually found myself having more to say about the the low lights in this film even though i i feel like i'm an apologist for it
0: i want to say like quickly it's humorous to me that uh the shining and what lies beneath are are head to head and my two highlight sequences involve a bathtub the two great sequences are um, in a bathroom and very bathtub specific. I will say The Shining does get the edge, but I am, as I mentioned, a real aficionado of every element of, of this movie's bathtub
1: sequence. So, it's great. Mm-hmm. It's funny that you say that, though, because I do feel like bathtubs are something that appear frequently, not just in this subgenre. Although I, I think that if we really like went through it. I, I the changeling. You could, you could find a lot of bathtubs. Yeah, the um,
2: changeling. Like remember? For sure. Yeah. The the banging the banging on the pipes was the the kid drowning in the bathtub. We can do spoilers on old movies now, right? Yeah, I, it, it, everything is up for grabs at this point.
1: <laughs> Actually, it's it's part of the format now that we have to spoil all the films that didn't make it into this yeah. space.
2: <laughs> um, Bruce Willis was dead the whole time. Everybody. <laughs>
1: I I do think that that tubs probably find themselves in the genre as a whole, and I'm not quite sure what the reasoning for that is. I mean, the the first thing that comes to mind is that there's certainly a vulnerability that when you're dealing with a bathtub, it is something that is traditionally something that you are isolated in. You are usually vulnerable.
0: You're usually naked. Let's just get it out there. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Yeah. you're you're alone, you're naked, um, and there's the potential for death. You know, a Mm -hmm. lot of people have died in bathtubs like it is it is relatively within reach, not just through drowning, but through uh, electrical objects falling into it. There's 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 a lot of danger happening there. So I don't think it's a coincidence that that has shown up a couple of times for your in your picks. It's a it's a scary place.
2: But even earlier in the film, uh, Harrison Ford, quote unquote, falls in the bathtub and almost dies in there. (laughs) So it's it 's clearly a very dangerous place to be in a in an upper middle class seaside home
0: well I mean this movie really, really embraces the concept of what lies beneath i mean this is yeah. is visually thematically narratively very much focused on water and and what is submerged under 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 the surface what 's going on. And the dangers and intrigues and hidden guilt therein. So, I mean, say what you want about this movie. Obviously, Vic fucking hates it for what it's worth, but it is on point in terms of uh, unity of expression. So that's. Uh, have we everyone given their highlight sequence? Is that is that true? No, I believe I believe
2: we covered it. Okay.
0: Yeah. Well, that's a good segue then to low light sequence. Uh, Rich, what's your uh, lowest point of what lies beneath?
1: It kind of feels like it's a, a series of events that happens within a, a short period of time, but I'll, I'll boil it down to a scene that happens shortly after um, Claire Michelle Pfeiffer's character is she's you know unsuccessfully like tries to like hold a séance with the with the spirit that she believes is trying to communicate with her. She passes by the, the bathroom, and the, the bathtub is full of hot water, and it's, it's bad digital steam, which is a, a separate complaint. And then on the, the mirror is, is written the phrase, do you know. And then shortly after in the scene after that, she's using a computer to do research, and the, the, the spirit is typing M E F. Which are the initials of the of the, the slain ghost? And it's typing MEF over and over and over and over again.
0: I, I want to point out it's like a, a online poker. Put your initials in after you've won the game. That's right. what the right. uh, context is.
2: Yeah, yeah. They they also just happen to be the initials of her neighbor who has mysteriously disappeared.
0: Uh, that that one is an UGG for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we'll get to that later. Yeah.
1: I guess this is a complaint about like the rules of a ghost, which I I do like to be somewhat clearly clearly defined about how communication is happening between the living and the dead in a movie like this where the entire thing rides upon that very concept. But if the ghost can write on mirrors and type its own initials, then why is there a mystery? Why is it having to lead her from clue to clue? Why does it just write her a fucking letter?
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, look, first off, that applies to every single haunted house movie ever. All of these movies are either a demon or a ghost. And if it's a ghost, it's usually we want I want you to solve this mystery. I want you to do something for me so that I will be laid to rest. And none of them are so cogent and and clear where they're like like, "Oh, well, I'll just I'm going to write, "Hey, listen, I'm dead. I want you to fucking kill this guy because he killed me. End of story. Like, that's just not the way they, they, these movies work.
1: But, but that's what I'm saying is that, that that's fine if like you're the orphanage and the ghosts are only communicating in the form of playing you know children's games with you. It's another thing entirely. If you're already right, like, it, look, as long as you're writing messages on the bathroom mirror, like just like get to the fucking point, like don't like beat around the bush. You do
0: have to build in like some understanding or appreciation of whatever the limitations the ghost has. It's not like the ghost is just sitting there I could write her a, a a hundred word like narrative and just put on the you know in small type on the on the mirror. Um, the entire story of what happened to me. But you know, our assumption is that that's beyond its capabilities, either because it doesn't have the lucidity anymore, or it's too limited in what it can physically manifest in the real world. But look, dude, I understand the criticism, but this applies to about 95% of ghost movies ever made.
1: I feel like this one takes it a step too far and part of it is just just—it is literally just like the use of the written word that we have multiple occurrences where it's not only writing things on mirrors. It's also hijacking computers like, again, if it can operate a keyboard,
2: it's also relevant to the story. Right. If you're looking at something like the haunting, like if the goal of the if if what the the spirit if what the malignant force in the movie is trying to accomplish is to is to elicit fear then it makes sense for the whatever the communication is to be as frightening as possible. This ghost does not exist purely to scare Michelle Pfeiffer. This ghost is trying to communicate something to her. And I think Rich's point is well taken. I don't know. I,
0: Look, can, guys, up until about like two thousand, ninety-five percent of haunted house movies were traditional ghosts, exactly like this. And I, I, I would levy this criticism against all of them. It's that they, like how
2: how many of them are on this list?
0: Well, I mean I think that's fair. I think that's a fair point. But at the same time, that's the biggest criticism that I, I I have in general is that when you have the spirit that is trying to communicate what is Im- impairing it from being less cryptic and like just communicating something <laughs> blunt and honest that would resolve this whole thing and I'm with you I like I have this exact problem but like I think we just somewhat accept it as, as a part of the genre. And like, that's, that's, that's all I have to say. like, I can't tell you that it makes sense that this thing can't write her a fucking email. If it can put her initials in a game. Um, But um, I have been trained to accept that ghosts have very sporadic ability either to form the thoughts or to communicate the thoughts. And so i I will write it off if everything else about the movie is working. That's all I can say, but i, I I'm not telling you guys you're
1: crazy at all. Yeah. I don't know Vic, is everything <laughs> else in the movie working
2: <laughs> Yes, otherwise it is an airtight screenplay with no well this the this is of- a
0: good moment for me to mention because I don't know where this would fit in, but I looked it up on the tomato meter. And critics have uh what lies beneath that of forty six percent, and audiences are at fifty eight percent so yeah, this is not a a particularly uh well respected
1: movie
2: yeah thank thank God we took this over uh what our point
1: oh it's still better than our point <laughs> I don't think they're competing with each other but it, it doesn't matter I mean like like I said, I still enjoyed this movie i these are the low lights these are the things that really irked me about it, but overall, I did. I found this film to be a pretty enjoyable watch despite its issues.
2: Yeah. All right. I'm gonna, can, I, can I chime in with mine? Of course. All right. She got in an accident and forgot that her husband had an affair.
0: She <laughs> had a head injury, Vic.
2: And, and forgot that her husband had an affair. Vic, have you
0: ever seen a thriller made in any country ever? Because, like, uh, uh, one of the critical tropes of thrillers are that characters suffer amnesia from head injuries, often suffered in things like car accidents.
2: It was like she saw them, right, and then they went to a party, and then she she got upset at the party, laughed, crashed the car. Then her husband takes her back to the same house, the same party. Where she, where she found, no, it's it's preposterous. One year later. Preposterous. The whole mystery of it depends on the fact that somehow, because you figure out that Harrison Ford was having an affair with this woman like 30 minutes before the movie's over. And somehow it's like you're supposed to still believe that he didn't kill her.
0: Yeah, that's a good point.
2: For another 20 for minutes.
0: If that's your low light, like what I pointed out to my wife when we were watching it was the audacity of the movie. And I'm not saying it it doesn't work at all. Like, okay, maybe that's what you're saying. I'm not going to go that far. But the audacity of the movie to reveal and have him admit that, yeah, he had an affair with her, but he didn't kill her. And for a while, that's sort of the assumption that we're all operating under is that, you know, she killed herself or whatever. And, yeah, that is tough to pull off. That is tough to pull off. I was about 50-50 at that point. And I was definitely, like, thinking I was suspicious of him watching it the first time. But I was open to the possibility that his his version of events – was legitimate and that, yeah, he had an affair with her, but he didn't kill her. Now I'll never know because I've known for 20 years that he fucking killed her, and I'm not going to forget that. But I, I can't go so far as to say it's totally ridiculous and I never bought it because I think I kind of did.
1: I think I side with you, John. I feel like the movie did a, has done a well enough job up to that point of convincing you that it's going to sort of, like, twist the story this way and that whether you whether you were convinced by the twists or not, they've established that not everything is what it seems in this film. And so it doesn't seem outrageous that the review will be like, Oh yeah, well, you know, I did have an affair, but I didn't kill her. It turns out that it's something else that's haunting you. It seems believable.
2: I was certainly open to that. I will argue that the movie doesn't convince you of that. Harrison Ford convinces you of that. And that's a brilliant, it's a brilliant, brilliant bit of casting. Yep, the problem is when I watched it the second time by the time he went, "Okay, yes I had an affair with her." But, and yes I lied to you, and yes you have amnesia and I didn't tell you for the last year about that thing that you forgot. How did I not see this? I'm sorry, it's from a from a screenwriting perspective, it's terrible. It telegraphs the ending from that from that moment if you don't know that he like I said if that was Alec Baldwin or Christopher Walken, this movie goes down in everyone's estimation from a, from 46% of Rotten Tomatoes to 26%.
0: You know, I, I, I will champion this movie on multiple levels. And one of the things that I, I wish that it, we would give it a deeper examination, because I think there's so many clues and interesting things. The very first shot of of this guy in the movie is he puts... Uh, almost a threatening arm around her throat. And it's it's immediately our visceral reaction is, uh, what's happening there? And then you realize, oh, it's just a lover's embrace. But a i jump scare. No, oh, fuck it. Come on. <laughs> I no. I love that kind of thing, man. Because it is a legitimate clue to what's going on. It really is. Like and, like, there's another moment that I fucking love in this movie where she calls him out, like, on for his ego or his uh, paranoia, and he just kind of looks at her and he goes, I guess I have to wor- watch out for that, don't I? And he's smiling, but it's, like, a total psycho kind of, I'm pretending that this is cool, but I'm, I'm really pissed about this moment. And, but he puts on the Harrison Ford smile. Dude, I mean, there's just so many, like, yeah, this is, this is a movie for grownups. This is a very sophisticated and subtle movie. And, yeah, it has its drawbacks and it has its broad Hollywood bullshit things. But I think there's a lot to love in this movie. And I've, I've rediscovered it in this process. I like it way more than I liked it the first time. So my low light sequence, though, because I have one, (laughs) even though I really like this movie and nothing stands out as especially poor per se, the scene with her neighbor who happens to have, as Vic pointed out, I believe the same initials as our murder victim ghost, where they're on opposite sides of this fence. It's extremely manipulative, especially in retrospect, once you have seen the movie more than once. The film does backflips to undermine the apparent meaning of the scene. They justify it as some kind of romantic mental breakdown by this other wife. But it's a cheat. Because this woman, when you watch the sequence, she's acting like a complete psycho over there. And they totally brush it under the rug later. I would buy this kind of romantic passion to an insane degree of distress among teenagers. That might be believable, but with grown-ass married couples at an Ivy League school, it's just not. It's just not. My caveat to that is that I fucking love when James Ramar, who is the husband to this troubled wife who's not actually troubled, she he 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 mocks strangles Miranda Otto, who's playing the wife from uh, Lord of the Rings and whatnot. And it's like a sight gag 20 feet away from Michelle Pfeiffer, where they're all like acknowledging, hey, you thought I killed her. Yeah. And he's like fake strangling her, like to be funny. I fucking love that, man. I love that that scene made it into the movie because it's just so weird and discordant that it's like, Hey, you, you thought I killed my wife. I'm going to like fake strangling her, um, at a social function. It was just, it was so random and and Michelle Pfeiffer's like so uncomfortable with it. Uh, that's one of the many, many things that I, I dig about this movie, but I will say that that sequence where they're talking, uh, with the fence between them is total bullshit. So there you
2: go. Yeah, I'll, I'm, I'll, I'll back you up on that one. I like that that bit of payoff there, but I did sort of write down that this is actually a a worse B story than Dick Howarde traveling from Ooh, yeah from Florida to from Florida
0: to Denver. Dude, I can't argue. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: All right, so uh, Rich, what's your thoughts on the ending?
1: I'm an advocate for this film. I would recommend it to people. I did not care for the ending. Post, like, once she escapes from the tub, I mean, it doesn't help that you're coming from a a pretty high high. Yeah. But after she escapes from the tub and she manages to sort of, like, drag her, you know, still numb body down the stairs and out the house past – an unconscious Harrison Ford which I can't even remember why he was unconscious can anyone
0: Oh he or- suffered a, at least a concussion when he hit his head on the sink in the bathroom when she right. appeared to be the ghost in the bathtub for him
1: Okay so then it kind of becomes like a, a there's a bit of a you know like she's escaping in a car but oh uh, it turns out that he's actually you know he's he's actually in there with her and then there's a, a bit where they they crash into a, a lake. You know, anyone feel free to stop me if I'm misremembering any of this. But they crash into a lake. I think it's a river, but yeah. That's not tributary. I think
2: I think it was a quarry.
0: <laughs> uh, I, I don't know why that stuck out as important for me, but when I was writing on my own thing, I'm like. Is it a river, or is it a lake? And I'm like, it's a river, so I felt like I needed to make that clear,
1: <laughs> yeah, so anyways, they they end up crashing. they crash into the lake or the river or whatever it is. It turns out that they've hit the car of of Madison, the the dead girl who's been doing the haunting all this time, and then her her corpse floats up and yep, and yep. then she gains ghost sentience or whatever, and then it ends up dragging like a shocked looking Harrison Ford. You know, down to like the, the the depths.
0: Actually, his foot is kind of uh, trapped. Like you, you, they kind of make a big point that his ankle is uh, is trapped.
1: The general feel of, of this thing didn't function great for me. Um, I thought that the film had done a lot of things right up to that point. This felt like a, a little too precious. Um, I didn't really care for the ghosts coming in and and, and claiming him. At the end, at least in some capacity, um, and taking him down. I know that this. What would you have movie.
0: preferred to see there? I'm just curious. Should she have killed him or something like that?
1: I guess I would rather look. You have like the the great bit where like Michelle Pfeiffer was was uh, possessed by her.
0: Right. I like that a
1: lot. Would, I would rather see her, the ghost, enact revenge through Michelle Pfeiffer, who has also been wronged by this man rather than it being this, like, paranormal uh, providence, as, as I think Vic described it, where, where the ghost ultimately is kind of dragging him to his, to his death. Again, it's one of those things where it's like the, the, the rules are sort of hazy, and, and this one doesn't really bother me that much, but the ghost in this case is only sort of capable of so much, but, but in the end, like, she is capable of bringing together a chain of events detailed enough to result in him dying. You know, while while not actually killing him herself, it didn't resonate with me. It didn't feel like I had a lot of depth. It felt a little too cute. That's fair. For me. That's
2: fair. I agree with, with everything Rich said. The one thing I will add is that we are going to, in the coming weeks, uh, I expect spend a lot of time talking shit about the ending of Below. And I will just point out that they have almost essentially the exact same ending. And I think Below works better than this. What?
0: That is not true. That is that not is, true.
2: That is a factually accurate <laughs> statement, John.
0: So, all right, Vic, tell, just in a few words, tell us why this ending is is bad, in your opinion.
2: It's everything that Rich brought up. I mean, I think that the issue is when you're telling this kind of this story, uh, as Rich mentioned, that supernatural as providence, right? It can only end with the ghost getting some sort of retribution for the evil that was visited upon it. And so that's how this ends. Like it can, it can really only end one way, but there is, there is nothing, I didn't find anything particularly visually or narratively poetic about this. And I did find some traces of that in, in below. This feels very rote. This is where the story had to go, and it goes there, and then it's over.
0: I think it's way better than the ending of Below, which is not a bold statement by any means at all. I thought there was kind of a weird, grotesque beauty in the depiction of the floating corpse as it you know, morphs between its deadness and the real, the spirit of the girl, a less dead, less decayed form. And back again, I, I think that that was satisfying to me, you know, after knowing what he did to her and the threat he's posed to our protagonist, who I care about, I'm on board with Michelle Pfeiffer's character. I thought it was pleasing that this guy meets this end, It was kind of a perfect end for this scientist who's driven by his ego and his belief that he's the smartest guy in the room all the time. And, you know, he sort of plays along with what he believes to be his wife's delusions. And ultimately his comeuppance is perfect, you know, based on what he's, what he's guilty of. It's very Tales from the Crypt, but This movie ties into uh, Devil's Backbone. It's very similar, where the the real antagonist of this haunted house movie is not the ghost. It's a human being. And like that film, much of the gratification of the ending is seeing the supernatural set things right in some way. I love demons in these films because demons are scarier. I will point out that during during the podcast tonight, I realized that The Shining, one of the things that makes it special is that they're not demons. Those are just the scariest fucking ghosts ever. There are no ghosts in any of these movies that we're talking about that are as scary as the ghosts in The Shining. All the scary shit are demons, and then you have The Shining. Because in all of these movies, ghosts are just looking for redemption or revenge you know to set things right they're confused they're hurt they're upset they want their mysteries to be solved they want the living to do something for them but and that's exactly what's happening in this movie but like in the shining dead people are so corrupt so so much a product of their vicissitudes and their vices and their weaknesses and their flaws and their moral failings that they're they're just hungry sad sick things sick souls that will never have rest and i fucking love that i mean that just scares the shit out of me but generally speaking in the genre ghosts are just like i have a problem will you help me fix it blah 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 And that's kind of what happens in this movie. So I'll put that aside for now. I'm pretty happy with the final act of this movie. I think it runs the gamut from creeping tension you know where he's making the 911 call that isn't legitimate and she has to go redial on his ass and like there's just any you know when he's lying there on the floor is he gonna get up or is he not i mean i'm sorry guys i think that's all good i think that's really good and then there's some over-the-top action harrison ford is echoing raiders of the lost ark but this time it's not a nazi in a truck he's after it's michelle pfeiffer and a pickup pulling a boat but he's claws his way in there and he's breaking her window and it's, it's all good. It's fine. And then we get more drowning suspense in the movie. Once the pickup goes into the river and yeah, I mean the ghost kind of saves the day, but I just, I like the visual thematic and narrative consistency of the movie. It it takes the concept of what lies beneath very seriously and it runs with it. I'm not going to say this is a special film. I mean, it's a slick, slightly dated, definitely old fashioned Hollywood supernatural thriller. It's not a landmark of the genre. This is not a contest. The shining is going to fucking win. It it never was. And it never will be a, a close fight. The fact that it's not in the shining's weight class is not a big insult. I'm voting for the shining. Vic, what's your vote?
2: I am also voting for The Shining. I I understand as best I can why John and Rich are recommending that you go check this out. I would say go watch Vertigo or Rear Window instead. Oh, those are not supernatural films.
0: I know this movie is is aping Hitchcock in a lot of ways, which is true. But I mean, I think it brings something to the table that it is supernatural, unlike those films.
2: Yes, and that, that somehow makes it worse. (laughs)
1: Huh.
0: <laughs> you know, Vic, if we did an hour on this movie, you might convince me, but we're not going to, so...
1: We're, uh, a we're, rich... cl- we're,
2: cl- we're, we're close to an hour, <laughs> Yeah, I'm pretty, you're...
1: I'm pretty sure we just did an hour on this movie. <laughs> you know, time flies when you're having
0: fun. All right, Rich, final thoughts and your grade and vote?
1: Look, the weird thing is, is that you guys are both right, and these are two movies that are both, like, two hours plus, which... I'm a big believer that if you're going to be more than two hours, and oftentimes if you're going to be more than 90 minutes as a movie, you really need to earn it. And both of these movies do earn it to me. What Lies Beneath is probably a more entertaining, certainly a more fun way to spend those, those two-plus hours, but there's no denying that The Shining is a more interesting way to spend them. And so uh, I will vote for The Shining and uh, see, see how it goes moving forward.
0: All right. Boom. It's done. Thank you for playing It Lies Beneath. I'm glad you were a part of this process because I appreciate you more. But The Shining, come on. Like, it's a juggernaut. Let's see if anything takes it out. All right. The Shining has vanquished What Lies Beneath. And we're on to the next matchup. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of March Mad Men. And I hope you hear us again soon. Oh, and by the way, thank you for listening. You are the listener. You've always been the listener. Fundraising.